So last week we started the omniscience of God. God knows all things. And last week we covered part one, which is just basically a look at what kind of knowledge there is in God and specifically what he knows. Um, for part two today, we're going to look at how God knows. Uh, we'll just briefly do some proofs. Most of the proofs are implied in everything, so there'll just be some additional ones. And then we'll spend a good amount of time on applications, what this means for us um, today. So we've already done part one. Today is part two. And we don't need to do much of a review. You're going to find almost everything we covered in here is going to be somewhat covered in part two as well. So um, if you weren't here last week, you shouldn't really miss anything. So today we're looking at how God knows, looking specifically at what kind of mental processes, to use human terms, does God use to know literally everything that can be known. And the first thing we talk about, one of the more confusing things, and we spent a lot of time on this last week, is that God knows by his essence. His essence is his knowledge. Um, What he is, is how he knows. Um, And so there's kind of two ways of looking at this. Number one, he knows the nature of things by viewing his own mind. And I put viewing in quotations because that's obviously uh, human language, right? God doesn't like think about himself in a way that we can because we're composed of parts and God is not. So that's using human language. But the way God knows everything is not so much by knowing the objects themselves, but by knowing his own mind, knowing his own self, because you are what you are based on how God made you. God created everything, and he knows it perfectly on the basis of what he made. So he's not so much encountering you, learning, and then knowing about you, as much as he is just creating you as he knows you to be in his mind. So he knows what exists based on his own self-knowledge of his plan. Uh, and, and we're going to talk just a little, we talked last week, we're going to talk a little bit by the why that's so important. Um, it sounds weird, but it's really important. And then as it pertains to future events and to some degree even past events, in the same way, he knows these things by viewing his decree. In other words, we talked about last week, God doesn't know the future as if the future is something outside of himself that he has an experience with, and then he's taking it on or learning it. Because we talked about last week, man, the problems of that. Number one, that means the future self-creates, which means we're all just products of fate. God just looks at what fate is doing. So fate is basically God, and fate is creating the future. And then God looks at what fate created and said, oh, it, it looks like a person named Jesus is going to be born of a virgin in Nazareth. Okay, I'll tell everybody. Right? But God is not seeing the future and learning the future. God knows the future because he knows what he's going to do. He's creating the future, and he knows it on that basis. So God knows what he knows by his essence. He doesn't know things by encountering them and learning about them. He knows them prior because he makes them. And this is why we can speak God, the scriptures can speak of God loving us before we ever even were made. Um, the, The scriptures tell us that And we've been covering it in church, in Ephesians chapter 1. In love, he predestined us from before the foundation of the world. So before the foundation of the world, so before you even existed, God knew you and loved you and chose you. How is that possible? You didn't even exist yet. And this is why, by the way, Mormons, Mormons will actually take that and say, Mormons believe that you are eternal. Mormons believe that you have always existed. 
You've never been created in Mormon theology. Your soul is eternal. And they believe, they base that on verses where God, in, in the Bible, where God speaks of knowing us before our birth and before creation. And so Mormons believe that your soul existed and then God had this awesome plan to give everyone bodies and we all agreed. And then we agreed to have a body and God said, but when you get the body, I'm going to erase your memory of your former life. And they, we all said, okay, that's fine. So we don't have memory of our former lives, but we all existed prior to our births in Mormon theology. And the reason they teach that is because the Bible so often talks about God loving us before we were created. It talks about knowing us before we were created. And the reason he can do that is because we have not always existed in our, in our own selves. Our souls have not always existed. Ontologically, we've not always existed. But God's knowledge of us has always existed because it's exists in his mind. So again, God does not know things by experiencing them, taking them on, and learning them. He knows them based on his decision to make them, his decision to create them. So again, the, the key here is God knows everything because he knows himself. He doesn't know you, he knows himself, and by extension of knowing himself, he knows you. He knows his essence, which means he knows everything. As Stephen Charnock put it, he knows things not by viewing the things, but by viewing himself. His own essence is the mirror and the book wherein he beholds all things that he doth ordain, dispose, and execute. So God knows what exists because he ordained it and created it. He knows what will happen because he will execute it. He knows what happened in the past because he disposed of it. But his knowledge of past, present, future, his knowledge of his decree, his knowledge of the present is knowledge of his uh, creation. So his own essence is how he knows. And so because God knows by his essence, there's some consequences to this. This means we can also say that God knows infallibly. Right? And to be infallible means it's true, and it has to be true. So God, there's no knowledge in God's head, to speak in human language, that could ever be falsified. God can never be wrong about what he thinks is true, or what, might, or what he thinks is going to happen. What he knows must be true. His knowledge is as infallible as his purpose. So this is one of the reasons why it's important for God to know based on his essence, and not by experiencing if God knows based on himself, that becomes the foundation for why his knowledge is perfect. Because he is unchanging, and because he is perfect, that then therefore everything he knows is unchanging and perfect. So God is not learning things and hoping that they end up being what he, what he you know, based on what he learned, thinks they will be. But rather, he knows himself perfectly, which means everything that he knows by extension is as perfect and infallible as he is. His knowledge is perfect because it's not based on experiencing what he knows, but because it's based on his own essence. As Charnock says, for without the will of God decreeing a thing to come to pass, God cannot know that will infallibly come to pass. Let me give a human example, or not a human, but let me give an example of this. I have a book that gives my favorite example. And um, God prophesied in Scripture two things about the Messiah. God prophesied that the Messiah would be from Nazareth, but born in Bethlehem. And he prophesied this many, many, many hundred years before it happened. So here's the question. God apparently knew before Jesus was ever born where Jesus would be born and where he would grow up. Now, we have to ask two questions. How did God know that? And could he have been wrong? 
And if God knew that because he experienced his creation and predicted it, then his knowledge is not infallible. Uh, I mean, for example, does, did, did, when Joseph, the reason Jesus was born in Bethlehem is because they went to Bethlehem for a census. Did Mary have the free will to say, Joseph, uh, I'm pregnant, <laughs> I'm exhausted, you go to Bethlehem and I'll stay back? Did Mary have the free will to do that? Did Mary, what happens if on the road they're walking, Mary just gets exhausted and they stop in some town in between Nazareth and Bethlehem? And Jesus is born there. I mean, just think of all the things. Imagine what if someone else would have risen to power in Rome and they decided to wait an extra year to do a census. All of these things. And, and that's just three examples. And we're talking how many different human free will decisions happened between the moment of the prophecy and Jesus actually being born in Bethlehem and then being returned back to Nazareth and growing up there. Could if at any point in time, one person could have made just a different free will choice and there would have been a domino effect and then what God predicted based on what he saw would be, in fact, would be falsified. So again, the reason God knows the future is not because of his experience with creation and making predictions because then it wouldn't be infallible. And he also doesn't know the future based on foreseeing it, because then we again have the problem of the future self-creating. There's a different director creating the movie, and God is just giving a preview into somebody else's movie. The future doesn't exist apart from God, because nothing exists apart from God. So he can't just know some self-created future, and he can't predict if people have free will. So the reason God knows the future infallibly is because his knowledge of the future is based upon what he is going to do. It's not based upon something he's seeing or something he's predicting, but it's based upon his purpose and choice. And the reason then his knowledge is infallible is because his purpose and his choice is infallible. Does that make sense? Well, it's kind of a lot, but does that make sense? So some scripture verses to kind of talk about this. Isaiah 14, the Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so shall it be. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand. God knows what is going to be. Shall this be? It shall be. It shall stand. He knows the future. Why? Because he's planned it and purposed it. He's not seeing the future. He's planning it. He's not learning the future. He created it. Right? He knows the future based on himself, not based on the future. Isaiah 46, 8 through 10. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Notice the connection. God is able to tell us the end from the beginning. He's able to stand at the beginning of creation and tell us how the story is going to end right? From ancient times, he can tell us things not yet done. This is just a poetic way of saying he knows the future. He knows what's going to happen. Now, what's the basis of his knowledge of the future? Did he peer into some crystal ball and see it? Did he ask fate, hey, fate, what are you going to create? No, he knows what's going to happen because it's his counsel. What I have decided to make happen shall happen. I will accomplish my purpose. 
God can declare the end from the beginning because he's writing the story. Someone else didn't write the story and then he foresaw it, right? We don't want to think of God as, as, as being able to see the end of the movie before we see it and telling us, guys, here's how the movie ends. Because what's the problem with that? Who made the movie? Is there some force that's creating things outside of God's purpose and plan? No, God's not seeing some self-created future. He's making the future, and his knowledge of the future is based on his plan. It's not based on his foreseeing. That's why, by the way, I used this example last week, but just to be redundant, this, it's, it's the same, it's not impressive when I do it, but it's more impressive when God does it. But just use the example, I can actually predict the future for you. I'm going to do it right now. I am going to pick up this water bottle and drink it. Wow, like I'm a prophet. Now, how did I know that? Was it because I foresaw it? I had a vision? I foresaw it? No, I simply knew what I was going to do. My knowledge of that drink was not based on the drinking. <laughs> it was based on me and my purpose. That's the same thing. God can say what's going to happen because he's doing it. He's doing it. As Charnock says, no reason can be given why God knows a thing to be, but because he infallibly wills it to be. He knows what is because he's made it. He's doing it. Uh, and the, again, the only other option to this is that God learns. It's the only other option. He takes something else upon himself and he learns it. And um, I wasn't going to talk about this, but let, let us talk about this. this. This is really kind of confusing, but it's, it's also important. In theology and in philosophy, you can talk about the order of things, and you can talk about things being in temporal order or logical order. Temporal order or logical order. Uh, temporal order is the order that's really easy to understand. That's when things happen in time. Right? So if I lift up my thumb and then my pointer finger, the thumb lifted first, the pointer finger lifted second, and we know that because it happened in time, in temporal order. You could actually see it happen separately. But sometimes things can happen together in time, like in time they happen synonymously, but one still grounded and gave birth to the other, so it has a logical priority, or it came logically first. It's, it's hard to give physical examples of this because normally material things happen in temporal order, but here's the best analogy that I've ever heard. Uh, it would make sense to you if I said, if I close my eyes, I can't see any light. So in order to see light, I have to open my eyes, right? So, so what comes first, opening my eyes or seeing light? Which one comes first? Opening my eyes. Opening my eyes comes before seeing light. I can't see light unless I open my eyes. But notice, it's not like I open my eyes and then 10 minutes later I see light. As my, as my eyes open, I see light proportional to it. However much my eyes open, that's how much light I see. And it happens instantaneously. So seeing light and opening my eyes happen temporally together. There's no temporal order. They happen at the same time. But there's a logical priority Light never precedes the opening of the eyes. The opening of the eyes always precedes the light, even if in time they happen together. Does, does that kind of make sense? So we, when we talk about even, this is why it's not just enough to say God just knows everything because he just does. He just, he's just God and he just knows everything. That might answer the temporal question, that God has known everything for all eternity, but it doesn't answer the logical question. 
So when we say God knows the future based on foreseeing it, eternally foreseeing it, then we, you can say, well, he, he's, he foresees the future eternally, so there's no time. He doesn't ever learn it in time, but he does still learn it in logical priority. You still have the future creating itself, and then God's knowledge of the future coming from the future, right? The future is giving God his knowledge. If God sees the future, then the future is giving God his knowledge. This is how all human beings operate, by the way. Everything you know, whatever it is you know, that thing gave you the knowledge of it, right? I, I could tell you things about this chair. I could tell you it has four legs. I could tell you it has a gate underneath. I could tell you it's blue. I could tell you it's soft. I could tell you there's cotton in there. Now, how did I know those things? The chair had to exist first, and then I had to encounter the chair, and then the chair had to, I mean, it doesn't metaphysically do this, but it's the chair that's ultimately putting the information in my head. I have to come in contact with the chair, and then, and then I learn it. So if God learns the future, if God knows the future by seeing the future, then we have something similar. Like, I know that this chair has four legs because the chair gave me that information. That's called learning. If God sees the future, then the future is giving God something, which means God is no longer immutable. He actually does change. He learns the future, even if it's in logical order and not temporal. It also means that God is not uh, assay, meaning he's, he's perfectly, all he ever needs is just in himself. He's not dependent upon anything. Yes, he is dependent upon something in this. In order for God to know the future, if he, learn, if he knows the future by just seeing the future, then guess what? He's not self-dependent. There's something about God, his knowledge of the future, which is not something he had in and of himself. The future had to give it to him. Does that make sense? Sometimes people are afraid to say, I don't get it. So I never know if people are tracking with me or not. But do you see just the, the problems with this view where God just knows the future or he sees the future? No, then he's not immutable and then he's not assay. He cannot get information from something outside of himself. So all of his knowledge comes from within himself. In other words, he knows by his essence. That's what we mean. It's his knowledge of himself that he learns. And I know we kind of hit that hard last week too, but it's really important. It's almost easier to think that he created the future. That, that's, no, that's exactly what I'm saying. Yes, that's it. He knows the future because it's his creation. Uh, Charnock loves to use the analogy of a watchmaker knows the watch before he creates it. And then if someone were to come along and destroy it, his knowledge is unchanged. He always knows the watch because it's his development. It's in his mind. The watch comes from his knowledge and will. So yes, God knows everything, past, present, future, because he created it and because he's making it, because it's his purpose and his will for it. So he knows it because of what he's making, not based off learning it, right? Like in other words, the watchmaker doesn't make the watch and then go, oh wow, I've learned something. Oh wow, he, he created what he already knew. He already knew it and then he just manifested it. And that's what God does with everything. God knows you perfectly, not because he's encountered you and learned it, but because he made you. You're the watch in his head that he manifested.
when you were talking about that leaving thing, it was like there's a great architect who designed this big building and he created blueprints for it. But then on top of that, he was the master builder. Yeah. So he knew everything about it. Exactly. He created the whole thing. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that, that, that's exactly it. That, that's how God knows everything because he, it's his will and his creation and his purpose. He doesn't get the information from the creation. And the, it's the other way around. We're going to show this. The information comes from his knowledge, right? We'll get to that in a second. Yeah. There's that, there's that mystery in being a human where you can get a small taste of this in August and we're able to create so, you know, like, you, you, there are times like, you, you know, back 4,000 years, you brought a uh, modern person into our modern world, and you said, speak to this object, and it'll speak back to you. I mean, it would have blown their minds. Right. Or for the person who works at Amazon Alexa, it would be like, it's really simple. It's just coding, and then this response is a chain of commands. And, you know, it's real simple for them to explain, but um, I think sometimes we, we see that every once in a while in our daily lives. Like, that's just incredible. They don't have it's like magic. Yes, yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah, no, that, that's another great example. That's right. Um, okay, so God knows infallibly because he is perfect and unchanging and his knowledge is based on himself, so nothing God knows can be falsified. He can't be wrong about anything. He knows by his essence. He knows infallibly. He also knows immutably, which means that what he knows cannot change. He cannot change his mind about what he knows. This means he cannot learn nor forget. That's all it means to know immutably. Uh, God never takes on new knowledge, which would be a change of his knowledge. God never forgets, which would also be a change. So he knows all things perfectly and infallibly and unchangingly. And again, because he knows them according to himself, his knowledge is as immutable as his essence and purpose. Because he knows all things after himself and not after what they are, then he can know it immutably in his essence, through his essence and his purposes. So those three are all kind of connected. These are all connected, but those are really, really connected. Here's where it gets a little bit more separation. God also knows by intuition. We're using this slightly different than we normally do it, but here's what we mean by that. Um, we're going to have to talk a little bit, some, some philosophical phrases here, but the, philo the philosophical way of saying this is God knows by one act. Let me try to explain that. Um, God does not know by discourse, which, what that means is that he does not need to deduce one thing from another. You might be surprised to know as a human being, as a creature, you don't come to know things the same way every time. There's lots of different ways for you to know something. I, I, I'll use the example of, I can know that hitting my hand with a hammer will hurt me. And there are lots of different ways I could know that. I could know that experientially by just doing it and experiencing it. So I could know that through experience. I could know that through science. I could learn about nerve endings and how they signal signals to the brain when there's enough pressure and then the brain tells your body it's a hurting. So I don't actually have to experience it. I could just learn it by, by science. I could learn it deductively. Like I could know that I've bumped my hand into a wall before and it hurt and so I can deduce how much more would a big metal hammer hurt my hand if just bumping it into the wall hurt. So that's a piece of information I know, but I have lots of different ways to discover that. But because God knows everything eternally and perfectly, he does not have lots of different ways to learn because he can't learn. So he knows everything in only one way. 
He knows everything the same way. We learn and know things through a whole variety of different ways, but God knows everything in only one way. He knows everything the same way. And so he doesn't ever have to deduce one thing from another, right? God doesn't have to ever have to say like what I just said. Well, I know that, you know, I know uh, Bill likes this because I, I saw Bill doing this and I noticed he doesn't ever do this and he's allergic to that. So I can deduce that Bill would, God doesn't need to deduce. He doesn't need to connect the dots and figure things out, right? So he just knows everything one way. He doesn't do discourse or deduction. He also doesn't know successively, which means he knows everything at once. He doesn't think of one thing and then learn another thing or learn one thing, which then helps him learn the next thing. It's math, for example, is very successive. In math, you have to learn addition and subtraction before you can understand multiplication, before you can understand algebra, before you can understand. So math, you learn successively. One thing builds on the next. God doesn't ever do succession. One thing doesn't build on the next for God. He, just, he knows everything at the same time and all in the same way by one act. And so this is why we're so common. Even most lay people are happy to affirm this. This is what, kind of what people mean when they say God has no past or future knowledge, but everything is present because he just knows everything, whether for us it's past, present, or future. For God, it's always present. His, his knowledge of it is always present. It's with him eternally. So his knowledge of himself is with him eternally, and he knows all things through himself, so he knows all things eternally in the present. He doesn't have past knowledge or future knowledge. He just has knowledge. Um, we see stuff like this. I like the way Acts, or the King James interprets Acts 15. Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world, right? He doesn't learn his works as he does them. He, he knew them before he even did them the same way he knows them after he did them. He knows all of his works from the beginning of the world. I thought this was the one where I talked about habit and act, but that must be coming up. I'll, I'm going to elaborate on this in a different point later on, but essentially all you need to learn here is that God doesn't learn things the way we do. He knows all things the same way, and he knows them all at once, not in succession or deduction. I, I think and hope that makes sense. So that was God knows things by intuition. God also knows things independently, and all we mean by that is that he does not receive knowledge from anything else. So again, God is not dependent upon other things to receive knowledge. He knows them by himself. We've kind of already talked about that with his... Um, yeah, yeah, there's no such thing as learning with God. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's, that's why he can't do these things because these things presuppose the ability to learn. So if you can't learn, then that limits you to how you know knowledge to one eternal act. Yeah, good clarification. Um, God doesn't receive knowledge from anything else. Um, oh, this is what I was going to quote. I love this. Our knowledge depends on the object but objects depend upon the knowledge of God. So this, I was kind of already saying this earlier, so I, I won't be too redundant. But like I was saying with the chair, I can know the chair really, really well, but my knowledge of the chair is dependent upon the chair. The chair has to exist in a certain way before I can know it. So for, for all created things, your knowledge depends on the object. Whatever you know about Polly depends on who Polly is. You can't know something about Polly that isn't true about Polly. You can think something about Polly that isn't true about Polly, but you can't know something about Polly that isn't true. So Polly has to exist in a particular way for you to know Polly. 
So the object determines what you know. For God, objects depend upon his knowledge. It's the other way around. So the reason that the chair is the way it is, is because God determined it to be that way. So my knowledge of the chair, the chair gives me my knowledge. But God's knowledge of the chair made the chair. <laughs> right? Does that make sense? Uh, I, this is technically Charnock. Charnock says he did not make things to know them, but he knows them to make them. Right? It's not like God created and then went, oh, look, the world is round. He made a round world. He made the world he wanted to make. So he doesn't make things and then know them now that they're finally there. He already knows them and then makes them. And this is actually, he's actually just rephrasing a quote from Augustine. So Christians were already affirming this in the 4th, 5th fourth, fifth century. And this, this is basically saying the same thing, right? God doesn't know the world because he observes it. The world is because God made it. Everybody else is different. All of your knowledge comes from the objects. But when it comes to God, the objects come from his knowledge. Does that make sense? So, in other words, but all this is trying to support the point that he knows independently. Again, meaning God is not reliant upon anything else for anything about himself. Here's the best example. Here's the best example. Uh, I would love, I pray that I will one day know my grandkids. Uh, that's what I hope. I hope that Matthew lives long enough to have children. I hope he marries him and his wife are able to have kids, and I hope that I live long enough and I have a good enough relationship. A lot of things have to go right for me to know my grandkids. I really want to know them. Right now, I don't know them. I don't know my grandkids. And, that, and, and it's easy. Why don't I know them? Because they don't exist. I can't know something if it doesn't exist. I can't tell you anything about my grandkids. They don't exist. So that means that if I ever do know my grandchildren, my knowledge came from their existence. Their existence would supply new knowledge for me. If God knows things based on what they are, then he is no longer independent. All of creation is giving God his knowledge. God, if you were to ask God, how do you know that the world is round? And he would say, because I see it then that means the world is now supporting God. Some of God's knowledge is being supported by what the world is. Just like I can't know my grandkids until they reveal themselves to me, so my grandkids are giving me my knowledge. And with God, if, we're, if we want to affirm that God is independent and he, need, he is in need of no other thing for any perfection of himself, then that means he cannot be dependent upon creation to tell him what it is. He tells creation what it is, right? For everything, for me and you, creation tells us what it is. For God, God tells creation what it is. Does that, does that make, make sense? I really hope it does. It's really important. But again, we'll be able to ask questions at the end. Um, but I love this. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? A rhetorical question reminding us that God does not depend on anything else for his knowledge. His knowledge is perfect and complete whether anything else exists or not. No one counsels the Lord, not even creation itself. Creation doesn't teach God what it is. God makes creation what he wanted it to be. 
God also knows distinctly, which is kind of a simple one, but it's still good to, to talk about, which means he has perfect and full knowledge of all things. He doesn't have just a general knowledge of all things. He doesn't have a fuzzy, hazy, or ambiguous knowledge of all things, right? Everything is known perfectly in every detail to God. Uh, compare it to this. For example, the Apostle Paul says this about us. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So here we see a general recognition that human beings can have like an incomplete knowledge. Like Paul says, there are things that we know, but we, we see through a mirror dimly. We don't, we don't really know them completely. We don't, we don't know them in fullness. You could never say this about any part of God's knowledge. You could never say God knows this to be true, but just kind of generally, just through a through a, a, a foggy mirror. No, he knows everything perfectly and distinctly with no ambiguity. God knows perpetually, um, which means that, again, his knowledge is continual. Oh, so here, here's, here we go. I, this is a fun one to talk about. So we get back to this, this philosophical term of act, that God knows all things in act and not in habit. Again, in philosophy, um, Words that are very common to us are used in different ways, which is, why it can, which is why a lot of people don't like philosophy. Let me try. Even this is kind of new stuff for me, so I don't understand it perfectly yet. But um, here's the best way that I can ex ex uh, talk about it. When it comes to knowledge, act is, is a verb. You're doing. You're, you're exerting energy, right? You're doing something. Habit is possession. So one of these is sort of active and one is passive. And we would say that in a certain sense, God has no possession, although some theologians say he has all possession, but it's, it gets complicated. We would say God has no habitual knowledge. He only has active knowledge. He only knows in act. He doesn't know in habit. Uh, the best way to understand this is um, we can recall things. God can't recall anything, right? He can't ever bring anything into his mind because everything is always perfectly distinctly on his mind to use that metaphor. That's why I love, the best way to understand this is how we have this expression. We will tell people to recall to your mind or bring to the forefront of your mind. This is a really neat metaphysical thing just about us as humans, right? Even not just with God, but the, the human psyche that God created is, is amazing. Isn't it crazy to think that you have knowledge stored in your head that you can access? And I, I don't know what's happening. I don't think these batteries are low. They're not. I'm sorry. I don't know. That. Right? Like, so, for example, um, Rodney, did you eat dinner before you came here? Polly, did you eat dinner before you came here? R Rodney, what? Did you drive here? Yes. What kind of, what kind of a car did you drive here? Uh, Chrysler. Chrysler. So, he knows that. The knowledge was there. He just pulled it up. It was obviously there. But he had, notice how he had to go, uh, he had to bring it to the forefront of his mind. It's, it's, it's in his his, his knowledge, but it's not active. He has, to, he has to make it active. In our brains, and we obviously know that there are things that are not in our minds at all that you can't even bring about, things that we forgot. If I maybe asked you what car your mother drove when you were four, you might not be able to recall that, right? So there's things you experience that you lose, and then there's things that you know by habit, but you're not, you don't always know them in act. Uh, another example that's often used is, for example, I know how to play the guitar, but technically, I don't know how to play the guitar when I'm sleeping because my mind is unconscious. So the knowledge is, is in me in habit, but when I'm sleeping, it's not in act, right? I'm not thinking about how to play. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm just going to have to... 
I don't want to lose the recording, but... Um, right, so that's kind of... So God doesn't have any knowledge in habit. It's not like it's just in his mind somewhere, and if he wants to, he could, he could bring it to the front of his mind. Everything is always, to use our metaphor, on the front of God's mind. It's always an act. It's never passive. It's never recalling. It's never just in there. It's always what he's thinking about. He's thinking about everything always, to use human language, which is just kind of insane to think about. Doesn't that just really make God just blow your mind kind of big? Like, just let me tell you a funny story. I drive my wife crazy. I'm always thinking about something else, thinking about theology or listening to a podcast, and then I do dumb things. I just found out today my wife had to text me that I went to do the laundry for her last night. I put all the clothes in the washer and I turned it on, but I forgot to shut the lid. So she came to the washer this morning and it was just an open washing machine with a bunch of water and clothes in it. And why did that happen? That's because I wasn't able to focus on very many things at one time. And because I was focused on whatever I was thinking about, I wasn't focused on the washer. I barely have the capacity to listen to a podcast and do the laundry at the same time. I can barely do that. And God has all things, an infinite amount of things, are always on the front of his mind. It's amazing. He knows all things in act. He never knows them in habit. Yeah. What about, there's a really good book called Sensing Jesus, and it talks about embracing our humanity. And he goes over these divine attributes of God, and he talks about how a lot of us get caught in some fashion trying to emulate God in this way. So either we are constantly trying to know everything perpetually. We're constantly trying to do things perpetually. Like, you know, just talk about how one of the fall, conditions of fall man is we try to take on these divine actions of God and make them our own. We're not able to do it nor possible. Yep. And he just says, if you look at Jesus, like, Jesus fully God, but yet when he comes in the flesh, what does he do? He takes breaks. Yeah, <laughs> yep. Breaths. He waits until he's in his 30s to start his ministry. When there were thousands of people he could have been healing from day one and, and ministering to him and saving and casting up demons, and he waits until his 30s to begin his ministry at the proper time. And so um, I just think that's, always, that's kind of one of the things that we will, you know, in eternity be amazed by is that God is not needing rest, yet we will still, as a created creature in perfection, rely on his perpetual knowledge, rely on his perpetual light to. Lead us through all eternity. It won't be a simple thing of like, now that we're in heaven, we're good, thanks. It's, it's going to be, it's doing leading on him, and that's it. Yeah, that's a really great point. And it's basically counter to the Mormon doctrine that we become gods. Like, yes, we're going to be glorified, and we can talk till we're blue in the face about what that means. But what that does not mean is that you will ever get the incommunicable attributes of God, right? You will never become God. So there are things about us that we will never not be dependent upon God. Like Jesse was saying, it's not like you get to heaven and God's like, okay, you're unglorified now, so you don't need me anymore. You're glory now. Like, no, we are ever and for always entirely dependent upon God, and there are things about God that he always will be that we never will be or come close to. And that's actually a, an interesting, because we're going to talk a little bit about that in the application, so I might make you repeat some of that. That's, that's a really good thought. You know, it makes you think you're... <coughs> Example of the watchmaker and building the watch line with an architect and building it. It's really insufficient because those are sequential events. God spoke it and existed. Mm -hmm. He didn't go through steps. He maybe saw the whole step, but he just spoke it and that was it. Sure, yeah. Yeah. 
it's a problem with others trying to understand things through time because time is relevant to God. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. As a human trying to find time yourself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. That's also right. Um, yeah. So again, God is always in act. He knows everything in act. Um, so that's, that's our seven how God knows, so I, I won't go through all of them. Um, just some additional kind of proofs. We'll go through this one pretty fast. Number one, we know God knows these things because of prophecy. Scripture gives plenty of prophecies impossible to be known by finite minds which have been fulfilled. Um, all of the prophecies in Scripture are evidence that God knows things that only an infinite mind can know. Um, because God is perfect. If creatures have knowledge, how can God be infinitely more perfect without infinite and perfect knowledge, right? We see this all throughout the time. We, we, we tend to judge the glory of, a, of something in many ways based on its reasoning faculties, right? So we, we tend to find um, like dogs and dolphins way more glorious and special and important than like ants and peanuts, and why is that? Because dogs and dolphins have a kind of intellect that makes them more, a little bit more like humans than ants and peanuts. Peanuts don't think at all. Ants barely think. I don't even know if you can call what an ant does thinking. But dolphins have some capacity to kind of reason about things, right? You know, they can do math and they can figure things out. And dogs have some kind of, you know, they communicate with us and they teach us things. So we tend to think higher of dogs and dolphins than we do of ants and peanuts because of that glory. And this is why we think of men as significantly more glorious than any of all God's creatures because of our ability to know and have moral accountability. And we know that angels have reasoning and angels are glorious. And so it's almost like the more something knows, the more something reasons, the more glorious it becomes. So if our God is going to be infinitely perfect, how could he have anything less than infinite knowledge? He just simply wouldn't be a perfect God if he just knew a lot of things. Not everything, but just really knew a lot of things. Well, he might be better than us, but he's not, he's not perfect right? Um, so if God, if, we're, if we want to affirm that God is infinitely perfect, he has to know all things. Uh, another thing that's interesting, uh, kind of in a, in a proof that God knows all things, is that he gives all knowledge, right? Psalm 9410 describes him as he who teaches man knowledge. There's nothing you know that God didn't give to you. Now just quantify that. Quantify everything you will ever know and ever have known, and then add that up with every single thing every human being that's ever existed has ever known or ever will know. And know that God gave us all that. So you can't, you can't give what you don't possess. Right? So we, we at least know that God knows more than every human being ever put together. We can at least deduce that. Because he gave all that knowledge. Right? Um, number four, because God is creator. God must know what he creates. He must know what he has the ability to create. He must be the cause of all things. And so this tells us that he knows all things. Uh, number five, because God is governor. This is a funny one. Uh, Hebrews 1.3 talks about how Christ upholds the universe by the word of his power. Um, in Acts 17, Paul is very clear about how God gives life to all, life and breath to everything. Uh, he made one man out of every nation and on all the face of the earth. He determined their allotted periods and boundaries and that uh, in him we live, move, and have our being. So again, God is the governor, the providential caretaker of all things. He determines all things. He's upholding all things. He's making the machine go. And what does this imply? This implies an incredible amount of knowledge because you, you simply can't operate something you don't know, you know nothing about. No one would ever ask me to operate heavy machinery 
because I've never once in my life worked with heavy machinery. I don't know what anything does. I don't know what the buttons do. I couldn't control it. No one would ever make me the president. I just, I don't know enough. I don't know enough about politics or economics. In order to be a good controller of things, you have to have a knowledge which surpasses it. Right? The more knowledge you have, the better you are at governing and running things. How much easier would your life be if you just simply had all the answers? Right? The more you know, the better you are at governing. The universe is so complex and so large and so grand, it's unfathomable to think of anyone who possesses anything less than perfect knowledge being able to govern and run the whole show all by himself. Right? So that God is the governor and the providential caretaker of all things demonstrates to us he has an unfathomable amount of knowledge. In other words, if God wasn't as, know as much as he did, the universe just simply would fall apart. He'd be an incompetent governor. But here's what I want us to focus our last times on, some of the applications between last week and this week. God knows all things, so what, right? What, is, what, what does that do for our lives? Number one, uh, this is a fun way to prove the deity of Christ. If you establish God knows all things and then you can establish Jesus knows all things, then you prove that Jesus is God. And the scripture definitely affirms that Jesus knows everything and Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Peter tells Jesus when Jesus restores him to ministry, Lord, you know everything, so you know that I love you. Uh, we know that Christ knows the Father perfectly. We see this. Here's an example from Matthew. Christ talks about his perfect relationship with the Father. There's lots of examples of these. And here's the kicker. The Father's eternal. Christ knows the Father perfectly. Christ has eternal knowledge, infinite knowledge. Um, Christ knows all creatures because he's their creator. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. He knows all of his creatures. He made all of his creatures. He knows the hearts of men. Um, in John chapter 2, now when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. And these, in other words, these people are giving a kind of false faith. They're believing in Jesus, but for the wrong motives. And so Jesus doesn't save them. He doesn't give himself to them because he knows their faith is incomplete. And how does he know that? Because he knows what's in man. He knows man's heart. He doesn't need people to testify about that. This is a divine knowledge. This is a knowledge a normal human being can't possess. So the deity of Christ is established by God's knowledge. Uh, the certainty of judgment uh, God can judge perfectly because he knows all perfectly, right? If you go to court and you're innocent, your hope is that the judge will be as informed on all the facts of the case as possible. You don't want judges getting deceived. You don't want judges getting manipulated. You don't want judges missing out on important details. God can't do that. He can't be deceived. He can't be manipulated. He can't miss out on important details, which establishes that there is a just and perfect judgment coming. He knows um, he, not only does he know who deserves reward and who deserves punishment, more than that, he knows what is a just punishment for every sin and what is a just reward for every good thing. He knows, per, he knows morality perfectly and he knows us perfectly. And those two things are both necessary to have a true perfect judgment day. And I just ask, is it not a comfort to know that God, that none of your good deeds ever go unnoticed? If God didn't know all things, you could please him and he might forget. Oh yeah, I forgot of that awesome thing that you did. Shoot, did you, wait, did you do that? Was that you? I could have swore, or was that your brother? I think that was your brother. That never happens. 
This is a hope for us in Scripture. Matthew 6, 6. When you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. The reason we don't have to go out and boast our righteousness to the, to the world is because we know my God knows all things. The world doesn't need to see my righteousness because I have the hope that God will see it. I can do righteousness in secret because I know my God in heaven will see it and reward me. Isn't it such a comfort to know that all our ways are known to him? He knows all of our good deeds. It also should be a comfort to us that no secret sin will be left unpunished, right? The flip side of that, he sees all righteousness. He knows all righteousness. He also knows unsin. A lot of just terrible things happen on earth and they don't meet earthly justice. And some things are so bad that even when they meet earthly justice, we just know in our hearts, that's not good enough. That's not good enough. We have the comfort of knowing that on judgment day, there will be no sin that isn't finally and perfectly dealt with. Because God knows all sins. Nothing is going to go beyond him. One of my favorite examples of this is Ananias and Sapphira when they try to lie to the apostles about their tithe and God kills them. Before God kills them, Peter says, while it remained unsold, did it not remain in your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Peter is reminding us here that you can hide your sin from the world. You can't hide it to God. Every time you lie, God sees that lie. Every time you have an evil thought in your heart, God sees it. And so we can know that on judgment day, there's not going to be any sins that slip through the cracks because he knows all things, right? So the certainty of judgment is both good news for those of us who are justified by faith and are seeking reward, and it's good news for those of us who want to see sin perfectly dealt with. Uh, number three, what we do with this, this helps us to trust in God's providence, right? He who knows all things perfectly can govern all things perfectly, which means he, he knows what you need. God knows what you need better than you know what you need. We get this from Romans 8, 28. Everyone's one of, one of the favorite verse for all Christians, right? We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. How could God work everything together for our good if he's limited in his knowledge, What's happening there is God is at that point saying, okay, you know what? I'm going to uh, get this person in a car accident and I, I think it will actually work for their good. I'm not, I'm not sure. I don't know, but I really hope, I, I think, right? That's not comforting. But because God knows all things, we can trust. He knows exactly what I need. He knows how everything will work out so we can trust that. You know, just how much, again, how much better would your life be if you had all the answers? How much more competent would your leadership be if you had all the answers? So since we know God has all the answers, doesn't that help us just trust him when things happen and we don't understand it? I don't, I don't get this, but you know what? God does. He does get it because he knows a lot more than we do. So this, God's knowledge helps us to trust his providence. Uh, we've kind of already hit on this, but it inspires us to live holy lives. Just remembering that you are never hiding your sin from God. He's always there. I tell you on that day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. God doesn't miss anything. He doesn't miss anything. So it inspires us to live holy lives. Last week I told you, I'll just briefly remind you, but I told you that kind of cheesy, but at the same time really important story of a pastor who was a youth pastor and he had some kids, a guy and a girl that were dating in high school. They came up to him and they confessed some sin and they told him, um, we're really sorry, but we're dating and we drove our car out into the middle of this field and we did some stuff in the car that was wrong and we're sorry and we want to confess that. And he says, 
I'm, I'm glad you told me, but I want you to know that uh, someone actually saw you guys. And they panic, and they're so embarrassed, and they're so afraid. And he tells them the Lord, and then they get relieved. Oh, okay, pastor. Okay, I get it. And he was saying, isn't it sad? I know that maybe is cheesy, but isn't it sad that they were relieved? Like, I don't care if God sees my sin, but I just really hope the neighbors don't see my sin. Right? Knowing that God sees all things should be the, mo- the, the greatest accountability we have ever. Your pastor may not ever see this. Your wife may not ever see this. Your parents may not ever see this. But God will see it. That should be our motivation for holiness. Number five, this is also why we pray to God. Right? Do you want to pray to a God who doesn't know all things? Do you want to ask God questions if he might not have the answers? In other words, uh, to do some historical theology, this is why Protestants don't pray to saints. This is why we don't pray to Mary. This is why we don't pray to Thomas. You want to know why? Because they're not omniscient. Even if, I ha- even if I had reason to believe that Mary could hear my prayers, what reason do I have to believe that, what if everyone in the world, like what if we all became Roman Catholics overnight and all seven billion people at night all offered prayers up to Mary? Do you think Mary's hearing all of them? If she, if she even has access to this world, which we don't even know. Again, this is what, kind of what Jesse was saying. Mary didn't become God when she died. None of the saints become God. Why would you ever pray to a saint? You have no idea that they can even hear you or hear everyone at the same time or even do anything about it. Prayer is fitting for God because he's the only one who can actually comprehend and know all the prayers of everyone in the world at the same time. Mary can't do that. Joseph can't do that. So don't pray to them. Pray to God. I know I'm just kind of preaching the choir in this room. (laughs) I didn't think any of you were praying your rosaries at night, but just in case you are, uh, God alone is fit to receive prayer. He's only the omniscient, all-knowing being is proper subject to pray to. No one else could comprehend all the prayers of every person. Number six, this is what Jesse was saying. Uh, Do not seek what is not revealed. In other words, embrace your humanity and don't try to be God. Uh, Deuteronomy tells us, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that may we do all the words of this law. In other words, sometimes, especially theologians like me and philosophers, will try so hard to know things that we just can't know. (laughs) They're secret. God hasn't revealed them. Be okay with that, right? It's okay to not know things. God did not make you the knower of all things. He didn't make you God. Just, just let God be God. Paul even tells his people in 1 Corinthians that he applies all the rules to himself so that they may learn by the apostles not to go beyond what is written. Just stick with what God has revealed and let God take care of the stuff that he hasn't revealed, right? But I, I, I think Jesse said it better earlier. He gave better examples. I don't, I don't, you don't have to repeat anything if you don't want. But this is exactly kind of what Jesse was talking about with that book. And just like, even Jesus in his earthly ministry sort of embraced his humanity. He didn't just go around and healing everyone at the same time. He, he embraced his limitations as a human, right? But, four quotes to read. Yeah. Um, first one comes from the says, There's nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also saw us from the hand of God, from apart from him who can eat or have enjoyment, right? So the first limitations. Um, <clears throat> And then he's talking about Timothy, right? Or excuse me, Titus. Titus says, what was Titus's goal? To teach people how to do ordinary life, sound in Jesus with love of God and love others where they live. This congregation becomes Titus's workshop or farm or office. How is Titus to go about his God-glorifying goal? 
What does a great man with superior gifts do for Jesus? Paul teaches him to pay attention to the local and ordinary persons for leadership. <laughs> and lastly, he didn't talk about those limits. He says, places, talk about limit, being limited to where we live. So Roswell, Mexico, which we all have to admit is not very impressive. <laughs> but this is why I love this kind of thing here. Places expose limits. Limits repulse the driven. The driven therefore struggle with the sense of place that Jesus had. Amid the aromas of freshly cut wood, the bone and blood in Jesus' hands would form an alliance. With this, he would shape and sand, sand long trunks and planks of wood into tables and chairs. Jesus knew the name of the trees. He built from them what his mind imagined and what his skills learned over time to call forth. He crafted bark during what the religion referred to as his years of obscurity. I think of this when I remember my grandma and grandpa visiting my home in St. Louis. They told me in a few minutes what I had not learned in two years, the name of trees and bushes on my rented property. We walked slowly, I listened to them, but listening required resting. I struggled with both my grandma and grandpa to the name and place for me. It seems that both Henryville and Jesus exposed my restlessness. I puzzle over what Jesus is doing among the witches. What is the meaning of the saw that has caught Jesus' beard and dangling from a smile? And all of this for 30 years, 30 years, Jesus would have had a world to save, injustice to confront, lepers to touch, shade to give. Isn't greatness squandered by years of obscurity? What business does the Savior have learning the name of trees? <laughs> yeah, that's really good. Yeah, that's, that's great stuff, right? who want to analyze uh, parts of the Bible and say, this is what this means, this is what's going to happen in the future. The Bible doesn't say that. Yeah, yeah. So they're projecting their own thoughts, and a lot of people get sucked into that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And, and the simple answer is, you know what, why don't we just leave the future to God? <laughs> I'm leave it to God. Yeah. Of course. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's that, what that quote Jesse was saying, that... Um, you said it's human desire. The, he said like limitations frustrate the driven or something like that. Like we have that capacity where I, I want to fix everything. I'm going to fix Washington, D.C. No, you're not. I'm sorry. But do what you can do. Like try to fix your little tiny corner of Roswell. Don't try to be God. You're not going to fix D.C. You're not even going to fix Roswell. But God has entrusted you with something. Embrace it and fix that. And trust God, right? I think that's what you're saying. We have that, this, 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 this pride that doesn't want to be limited. And when we meditate upon just how much unlimited God is, it helps us embrace, I am limited and that's okay. And I'm just going to do my small little role faithfully and trust everything else to the God who doesn't have small roles, right? I, I can't tell you how many people who have commented to me, well, with all this going on, <coughs> God's coming back soon. <laughs> yeah. Forget about that. <laughs> you know, live like he's going to back right now. Sure, there you go, yeah. yeah. That's right, yeah. That's right, yeah. And I think that's the struggle we see certainly in America right now is both both sides, left and right, because I have some people I work with and have known on the left and, and certainly some people on the right there. It's, you know, if we could only get our guy in power, everything will be fixed. And like, well, I mean, four years is certainly, you know, a fair amount of time, but it's not nowhere near enough time to fix DC. Yeah, that's right, yeah. We may never, and I think that's a hard thing for us to accept, that some of these problems outlast us. Yeah. Um, we want them fixed during our lifetime. We want to be the one to fix it. We want to, and not that, like you're saying, not that we don't give up, not that we have this defeatist mentality, um, but that we have to admit, though, this problem is bigger than me. Yeah, that's right, yeah. 
Yeah, that's right. It's, it's easy to be crippled by guilt too. Like sometimes I'll just think about, there are so many people in the world suffering right now. I just, I want to fix them all. And, and you can almost feel guilty. Like, like if Layla and I go out to lunch, why am I spending money at Chili's when I could be giving it to this person? I could be giving it to that person. I could go be doing that. that. Again, that's kind of what we're talking about. Like that's great that we have a heart that wants to see all of humanity fixed, but God has not called you to that. He has not, he has not called you to, to, to be the savior of Roswell, right? Or, or of much. So yeah, that's great. Just, just yeah, let God be God, right? Uh, and trust God. His, his knowledge gives us reason to trust him. He cannot forget his promises, his covenants, or you. God is unable to forget what he's promised you. He's unable to forget his covenants. So we have good reason to trust the God who cannot forget. He can't forget you. He can't forget his promises. So because he knows all things, we should trust him. Uh, We should exalt his grace. Uh, The fact that God knows everything means he knows all of your imperfections. He knows every sin you've ever done. Every wicked thought, every wicked feeling, every, everything you've ever done in secrecy, God knows it. And he, it's not just like it's a past thing to him, it's present to him. Your sin is always on the front of his mind, and he loves you anyway. And he loves you. He chooses to love you anyway, right? So his omniscience, we should exalt his grace. Can you imagine how sad it would be if God loved us, and then on judgment day, he started going through the papers and was like, oh man, I forgot you did that? Oh, I, 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 I don't know if I like you so much anymore. I kind of forgot about it, right? How terrifying is that? But no, he sees all your ways, all your sins, and yet he loves you infinitely, chose to save you. So his knowledge of our sin should make us exalt his grace. He knows our sins better than anyone, and yet he still loves us. And then this is the last, no, sorry, go ahead, Bill. That slide just for your perfection. You said imperfections, but you don't have Oh, thank you. Yeah, that's right. So God knew, God knew that I would write this, and he still chose to love me anyway. You see that? <laughs> Thanks, Bill. What an ironic slide to mess up. <laughs> uh, and then the last one, similar to this, I mean, exalt his grace, but similar to this, we should just praise God. Uh, we tend to honor and praise men with much knowledge, and, and I use this in the, the exhaustive sense, not just males, but human beings. When, when someone has an incredible amount of knowledge, we just naturally have a kind of reverence for them. I mean, you go into my office right now, and I have five faces hanging on my wall. There are five men, the pictures of men on my wall, and I just look up to those men, so, not because they're perfect, I don't worship them, but they just, they knew so much theology, it amazes me. And I was listening to a Christian scientist talk about Albert Einstein, and talk about Einstein's law of relativity, and he was just talking about how, like, the average layperson just, just has no idea how incredibly brilliant and complicated and sophisticated the physics of Einstein is. Like he said, it's, it's hard to believe a single human being was capable of knowing and figuring out what Einstein figured out. And, and I'm sure there are people who come to your mind. I know like Bill has a high regard for uh, uh, Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill is, people are just marveled at his wisdom, his knowledge during the time he was in governing. Yeah, sure, of course. This is saying, no, it's, right? But, but, but we see this. The more a person is capable of knowing, the more we tend to reverence them and amaze them. So we have to ask that question. So how much more should we reverence the person who literally knows everything 
Like he literally knows everything. Like it should just make us, give us goosebumps and go, oh my goodness, this God is the most amazing thing in the world. Just infinitely smarter than the smartest person you've ever met. Infinitely smarter than the smartest person you've ever met. Right, so it's, it's like an argument from the less to the great. If we praise people for knowledge, how much should we just praise and love and adore God that he is capable of knowing everything? It's, it really is amazing. 